Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, comedian, writer, improviser, and musician, Jason Mansukas. Growing up on a little island off the coast of Massachusetts didn't afford aspiring performer Jason Mansukas much room to interact with the outside world. But it was a good place for Jason to hone his comedic skills. As he says, I was a little Greek kid in a very waspy town. I felt very much like the other and was subjected to lots of name-calling and threats. But that's where I came into being as a funny person. I diffused situations by making people laugh, and I never got into fights. Jason's world started to expand when he got bused to a regional high school. That's where his talent and passion for performing really took shape. He wrote and performed in sketch shows, played in bands, and did comedy bits for his class. After college, Jason received the Watson Fellowship to explore abroad, but was gripped with fear and loneliness the moment he landed in Morocco. But working through that experience was essential to his growth. It's why he got involved with Improv and the Upright Citizens Brigade, and it's how he persevered through the rejection during his early acting career. And it's why he writes, co-hosts a podcast, and has so much acting work on television and in film. You've probably seen him in The League, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, Parks and Recreation, The Long Dumb Road, or even John Wick 3. Jason joins off-camera to talk about his nervous breakdown in Morocco, why he'll never stop doing improv, and why playing a maniac in The League made him a target for drunk bros everywhere. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Jason. Hey, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Well, you know, I love having people like you on that do multiple things because not only is it impressive and there's lots to talk about, but I feel a kinship with someone who can't just be happy doing just one thing. Sure, absolutely. And you act, you write, you're an improv master, you're a musician, <laughs> you have a podcast, Yeah. Uh, you do VO. Um, it is a lot of stuff. And you're all over Probably the place. Probably too much. That's, but, but you're all over the place. You're in the new John Wick movie. I am. You, are, you pop up in The Good Place. Yep. You're on Andrea Savage's show, I'm Sorry, mm-hmm. which is really funny. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a funny thing now. When I see you on television, I'm like, I just kind of settle in, and I know it's going to be enjoyable I'm, ride. I do feel very lucky to be one of those people that now is like gets to pop up on shows yeah. and, and be people's like, oh, there's that guy again. Or for the people that are like, oh, this guy again. <laughs> I'm out there making people's nights or ruining people's <laughs> nights, and I'm thrilled to be doing it. <laughs> well, out of all those things you do, is there, is there one that you would say defines you more than the others or one that You know, I mean, out? just on a level of, I think for me, all of this is an expression of just comedic point of view. You know, we live in a time right now where people can, through all of these different mediums, pretty quickly establish a base of work and, and, and stuff that allows them to kind of express themselves and find a voice and put it out there. But if I had to erase everything but one, it would be stage work. I would keep UCB, you know, I came up in the, uh, you know, the New York improv scene in right. like the late 90s, early 2000s that was mostly centered around the then kind of brand new Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, uh, which has now become such a kind of staple of modern comedy. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't a recognizable name. Um, And so at that point, you know, I feel like my friends and I talk a lot about how lucky we were to be in at that first kind of that first era of UCB because we just got a tremendous amount of stage time. Also, we were very lucky both because we we were there at a time when the whole community felt very small and felt very much like we were all... Um, the nature of improv is built on support. You know, the whole ethos of improv is yes and. You know, like, I agree with you and let me add to that. You right. know, that whole idea... That makes a very good guest, by the way. Yeah, right? And it makes a very good scene. It yeah. makes a very yeah. good show. It makes a very... All of it. It makes... By the way, it makes a very good life. If you can implement that kind of an ethos into your life, improvising your way through life sounds great. I wish I could do that as well as I improvise on stage, <laughs> you know? But doing the stage work, you know, I do a show every Friday night. I do a show every Wednesday night here in town. Those are the things that I want. Those are the things that, like, if you took that away, I worry everything else would fall apart. You know what I mean? Like, to me, improvising, being on stage, that, to me, is like the exercise. That's the workout. Everything else kind of branches off of that in some way. And so that's the thing that I feel like is 
either best representative or is the thing that I value or would protect the most, you know, is live performance. Can you look back now and say, oh yeah, when I was a kid I did this and it totally makes sense that now I do improv. What, What was that thing? I was a kid who was very kind of always doing shows, you know, for the lack of better term. Like, I always wanted to be doing stuff in front of people if family was over or whatever. I was a performative kid, you know. I didn't do plays or anything like that, but I was, the minute I could take music lessons, I started playing drums and was in bands. The minute I could, in high school, when our high school had variety shows and we could write sketches and do comedy on stage, I did that. You know, that seemed to me very uh, attractive. And you came from a really small town, right? I came from, I believe, maybe the smallest town in Massachusetts. Is that uh, true? I, came, I come from a town called Nahant, Massachusetts, which is like a, um, it is a one square mile island, essentially, connected to Massachusetts by a, like a two and a half mile causeway. Oh, so, so we, there's actually water around Oh, the yeah, town. oh, completely. Yeah, 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 except for... Now, is know, it disappearing with global warming? It is not, although I suspect at some point, yes, at some point this town will go away due to global warming. This show just got really controversial. Oh, so controversial. <laughs> global warming, it's real. <laughs> Watch out to haunt Massachusetts. So you're 46, you're a little younger than me, but I think still in that generation that probably, you know... The kids weren't super protected from bullying or mm-hmm. like we sort of had to make our own way and and, yeah. and I was curious if that was exacerbated like the cliche of the small town where everyone knows everyone else oh yeah did that serve as a protective thing or or was it like you ran the gauntlet I ran the gauntlet I was definitely a kid who was bullied we moved into the town that I grew up in when I was a kid uh, but it was a town that was really uh, predominantly families that had been there for generations so we were new people We were new people. I was a new kid in a town that had very few kids to begin with. So it definitely felt outsider-y. Right. And it definitely felt like uh, I was subjected to the bullying that, like, a lot of kids were, which was just, you know, name-calling, lots of threats. I was a little Greek kid in a very waspy town, and it just seemed, you know, we didn't go to either of the two churches that everybody went to, you know, and so we were, like, I felt very much like other in some way. Right. But that also is, I think, definitively where I come into being a funny person, diffusing situations by making jokes, you know, really. I never, I never got in fights. I never, that, that's, it never escalated to, like, catastrophic circumstances. But it was like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. You know, I've, as we were talking about, like, I'm, 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 I'm on a lot of shows. Like, I'll show up in a lot of different shows. The first show I was on primarily was The League on FX. Right. Uh, on which I play a character called Rafi, who is a true crazy person. Like, a real lunatic, like an unhinged lunatic. And that's widely what I'm well known for. And so it oftentimes leads drunk people to really want to confront me in bars. In you know, real life. In really? real life, constantly, constantly. And you got to stay out of bars. Oh, kind of. You know, there are certain kinds of bars I just don't go to anymore because it is a particular kind of drunk bro who thinks that's Rafi. I gotta like I gotta punch him. I have to physically touch him. I have to like get involved with that guy because that's what Rafi is. And it is it is the same skills as high school of diffusing people who are physically antagonizing me, even if that antagonism is positive, like you're the guy from my favorite show. It really is like how can I kind of get control of this? Yeah. So kind of being that other how did that dovetail with performing? Because I'll tell you, in my high school experience, we had a pretty good drama department, but, mm-hmm. and we would have some improv-type stuff, uh, but there was such a level of shame and, uh, and mockery that happened sure. that it, it sort of took the fun out of it, I think, for myself oh, and a lot of the yeah, people. Yeah. What I wondered is, did that affect your desire to perform? Or Perhaps, like, the, in a counterintuitive way, you know, there was a way in which I, was, I felt so... Um, um, visible uh, that instead of trying to be invisible I went the other way I became much more performative so we would do sketch shows in, co- in high school like write and perform sketch comedy you know stuff like that stuff that was um, you know I just did a lot more stuff that was front and center 
controlling the right, narrative right. of how I am funny, how I am, you know, all, I think at some point very young, I very much became captivated by the idea of having an audience, you know, whether that was for bands that I was playing in or when I, once I started doing comedy, it seemed very much like, or whether it was just doing bits like pr- a presentation in class, you know, they were always funny. If if you had to, if I had to do like a uh, a report or something that had any, or like in high school, you know, teachers would let you like make a video for your project instead. I would always make the video. Right. You know, it would always be funny, and I would always get good grades because even though the the academic work was subpar, the video or the presentation was always very funny and compelling. So I think I skated by a lot on that. Were the results important to you? Like, did in terms of your your own self-image, was it important to get the laughs? And- yeah, I think it was. The, whether it was important to get the laughs or whether it was important to uh, for people to enjoy the concert if I was playing in a band, because for a long time it was like everything was about bands to me, like playing in bands, being in bands, like all that stuff was super So would those exciting. things fight the, the, your desire to play music and your desire for comedy, or was... No, no, it, it was, because it, I was, it, it, all of that, it, it's, especially when you're that young, all of that seems, kind of, all of it seemed possible. And all of it seemed appropriate, all of it seemed like good places to put a lot of energy, you know? And so all of it, you know, like I've got tapes and tapes and tapes of me and friends doing dumb comedy bits and I've got tapes of me and bands rehearsing and learning songs you know like all of it seemed like uh, all of it seemed like some form of expression that I was clearly dying to get out I think one of the things for me that was very important was the town I grew up in was isolating and small. It was a very small town. It did not have many children. And it was not the kind of place where you could just ride your bike to the town next door. The town next door was like miles away. So I grew up feeling very lonely and very isolated. And so once I get to like junior high, high school, where I'm, where the kids in my town were bused to a different town, that's when I was like, I'm going to do everything. I want to be, I want to be around people. I want to be doing stuff with people like bands, sketch groups, all that really was very attractive to me. I think a lot of it because I was just, I think, quite, quite lonely. Yeah. Uh, and that was very, that was huge to me. So in a way that, in a way that like academics never held much interest for me. Like when I got to college, like I was a religion major, which was great, but like truthfully, like I could tell you very little about the, all of the different religions I studied at that time, but I also was the GM of my radio station and had an improv group. And I could tell you all about both of those things. Those are the things in college I really spent all my time on, was the radio station and, and improv. Was there a time when you picked one? There is. Um, I graduate college, and um, I get uh, a Watson Fellowship, which is, is a grant that is essentially a non-academic Fulbright. Okay. Um, the Thomas J. Watson Foundation gives out uh, a number of them every year to people who pitch them projects that are meant to be an exploration of something that you are passionate about, that you know a lot about, but that is not your field of research. So, oh, so not religious studies. Not religious studies. So something that you would not pursue on a graduate level, basically. They're not interested in helping you get a PhD or a master's or anything. They're saying, we want to give you money to explore a passion, something you're really into. What a great concept. Yeah. Uh, The only stipulation is, uh, if you take the money, you have to remain out of the country for at least a year. So you can't be popping back in. You can't have your life. You can't... Their whole thing is, we want you to have the experience of not just figuring out what this project is, but actively on the ground doing it, you know, and really having that experience. There's no in-country, there's no support system. You're not, you know, uh, you're not tied to a university in-country or anything like that. You are really just, they're like, here's your check. Have fun. You know, where'd you go? So I pitched a project. There was about music that was meant to uh, bring about an ecstatic state with God. Like all these different musics in different countries that were, that had either some root in like holy music or trance music or music that was meant to bring you, so like the, so I lived in Morocco, Egypt, Israel, Turkey for just under two years. And you were on your own? On my own, yeah. I got to Morocco, first country, had a complete nervous breakdown. You did? Complete. Like, like homesick and... F- like crazy. Like, you know, because this is also 1995, 96, 96. 
And so there's no real internet. Yeah. So, you know, I had, like, for the first three weeks, complete nervous breakdown. I didn't know what to do. I realized, you know, like, my high school French was not really going to get me by in this country. And I didn't know anybody. I hadn't set up anything. I just really landed and freaked out. What's the picture that comes up when you say freak out or nervous breakdown? It really was, like, I the first night I was there... I got hives. I couldn't sleep. I was the. It was conceptually the idea of, I it, like I went for days in a row just not talking to anybody because I just panicked. I was like, I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know what to do. So a lot of it was just I would buy a phone card and I would call home and I would like cry to my parents and be like, I fucked up. I shouldn't have done this. This was crazy. And they were like, yeah, you know, they were super, they were nervous. I could tell they were nervous, but they were also like, you know, just give it another day. You're gonna, it's, I bet, I bet things will look better in the morning or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I think and, your parents are like, are we sending him a ticket? Are we going to go oh, get yeah. him? Oh, yeah. Well, later they were like, oh, no, we for sure were like, are we going to need to go get him? Because I was, that bad. I seemed inconsolable at the time. And I left, you know, I landed in uh, in Rabat in one city and then went to Essaouira, which was like a coastal city, which was a much different vibe. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot more sense. This I kind of, this I can wrap my head around. And then I met uh, some people who were in the Peace Corps there, Americans who were in the Peace Corps there. And they were basically like, here's what you should do go to Marrakesh and live in these neighborhoods. And I was like, okay. And so I went to Marrakesh, got a place there, and from then on was like, oh, okay, this, this works totally. And then I stayed away for almost two years. You know? Wow. I, I wonder what that, what that experience did for you on a global level of your personality or your approach to life. I think the thing that for me was massively helpful was the the. Uh, the one-two punch of both having a complete all hope is lost, I can't do this, this is too hard, to incrementally coming back from that into like, oh, not only can I do this, but I can do this quite well. I just needed to kind of go through all of the misery, go through all of the fear, all of being scared. Um, And that lesson was super important. And then the other one that was massively important, I think, for what I do now or for anything, is just the absolute uh, necessity and understanding that nobody was going to help me with this. Nobody was going to do this for me. Nobody was going to make this better. Everything that came next, I had to generate. And that was, I think, and is so applicable to this business because this business, nobody's here to help. Nobody's coming. Nobody's, you know, I had a casting director say to me once, nobody's looking for you. You know, like nobody's looking for somebody that looks like you. Nobody's looking, nobody's writing a script with someone that looks like you in mind. So it's going to be tough, you know, but stick with it. But it's going to take you longer than maybe other people because nobody's looking for you. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Lightstream. Are your credit card bills keeping you up at night? Are your interest rates in the double digits? Well, you can be smart and pay off your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a fixed rate as low as 5.95 APR with AutoPay, which could save you thousands in interest. And you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 and there are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Plus, Lightstream is a division of SunTrust Bank, one of the nation's largest financial institutions, so you can have complete peace of mind. Want to save even more? Well, our listeners get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash camera. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash camera. Now I'm going to read the disclaimer. I'm going to try to read it really fast like they do on the radio. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash camera for more information. Now back to the show. How did you like come up with a game plan for what you were going to do after that? 
period. After, I'd always thought, I'll go to New York. Even before I got the Watson, my assumption was, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to try and do comedy. So it wasn't a band thing for you. It wasn't like, I'm going to go back to New York and I'm going to be... Well, it, it a little bit was because the other thing that had been happening is that because I was a drummer and because I'd done some acting and comedy, I'd also, right before I left on the Watson, I'd gotten pretty far into the audition process for Blue Man Group. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, in like 19, in the mid-90s was like a big deal. You know, it was the first time Blue Man Group was going to have a, a new A traveling show, company. A traveling yeah, yeah. show. So I auditioned for the that that version of it. I got like, I don't know, five or six callbacks in. Uh, and, and, and so that was the first time that I had a like brief bit of like, oh, Oh, these guys are actually giving me positive feedback. I'm just like, trying to imagine you right know, now right? as Blue Man Group. I know, right? Can you imagine, like, clean shaven, all of head. it, bald cap, the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, and and primarily, I will say, quite honestly, what got me a lot of the way into that process was just being a good drummer, because that was such a component of the show. The original show was all of the percussion stuff that they were doing with all those tubes and all the stuff, but that was like a real. Audition, like callback, audition, callback, and I was like, "Ooh, that's interesting," you know. And so I think in my mind, I thought I would move to New York and try and try all of them. Like I think I thought I would maybe I'd be able to go on more auditions for things. Maybe I'll join a band. Maybe like I think at the time I feel like all of it seemed possible to me. Um, but then uh, I, when I came to visit New York before I moved there. Uh, a friend of mine that I'd done improv in college with brought me to see the Upright Citizens Brigade do a show. Uh, and I was like, oh, this. This is, this is the whole thing. This oh, is, you just immediately recognized Immediately. It. I was like, oh, yeah, great. And I moved a couple months later and immediately just enrolled in UCB classes. And that was it. Like, for, like, I, like I couldn't have timed it better because they were just starting, uh, yeah. and I started taking the classes and then got onto a team and started performing. And the minute that I found that scene, that's, like, everything else went away. I didn't, I, I wasn't interested in any other stuff. You know, I didn't play in bands anymore after that unless they were, like, comedy bands. You know what I mean? Like, ev- everything else went away because I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is the perfect Uh, expression of all of the things I'm passionate about because one of the things I loved so much about playing in bands was was playing in jazz groups because it's improvisational. Like that that degree of um, uh, ensemble-based listening, reacting, acting, reacting. We're not playing the same thing the same way every night. You know, being on stage and improvising scratches the exact same itch for me. You know, and when UCB was started going, because in college I'd done short form improv, like games improv, you know, goofy like games. I-O and- like I.O. does or, or any of those places, uh, comedy sports type stuff. Uh, but UCB in that scene is based entirely on long form improv. So it is, we get one suggestion from the audience and we'll improvise a 30 to 40 minute show based on that one word, right? Uh, And the show is multiple different scenes, two-person scenes, full group scenes, all of which, in theory, are are a deconstruction of the original suggestion. And then, hopefully, in success, you're telling a story that, you know, like a lot of great... like, Like Seinfeld has this structure a lot, or other shows, where all these disparate elements, as the show continues, start to collapse onto each other. Right. And you start to feel like, oh, wait a minute, this whole show thematically, is these certain beats coming together into one kind of, hopefully, moment that feels very exciting if you're an audience member to have watched these people build out this weird thing that's funny and compelling and then somehow make it all come together. That's exciting to watch, and that felt awesome. Because it wasn't just about the individual jokes or the individual bits that you could come up with in the moment that were funny and got you a momentary laugh. You know, it was about the success of, like, it's easy, I think it's very easy to make people laugh, right? It's, it's not that hard to make people laugh. It's really hard to kind of blow people's minds. It's really hard to, like, do something in a comedy show that makes people upset, sad, scared. Like, to give people uh, uh, feelings that are not just making them laugh that's very exciting. And that's what, yeah. that's what long-form kind of improv gives you is the freedom and the time to build something that isn't just funny. It seems like improv is, uh, can be a portal to 
a complete surprise in art that that is as, every bit as satisfying to the creators as it is to the audience. Exactly. It, it, is, it is one of the only art forms that everybody, uh, the people both on stage and the people in the audience, are discovering the show in the moment. It's yeah. truly this thing, what, we, what we're going to perform tonight will only be performed tonight, and you will be the only people that ever see it. Done. You know, when I think about how much the volume, like the vast majority of my work, my lifetime's work, is completely ephemeral, unrecorded comedy. Right, it is sort of like jazz when you describe it that way. Yeah, it is completely in the moment, it is completely one time only, and then it's gone. I've done thousands of hours of shows that are just, that only existed in those, those nights we did them. That's it. And then see you later. Goodbye. And I couldn't remember. People walk up to me and are like, I saw you do a show at UCB like five years ago. You were like, your guy had like a weird hat. And then Brian Husky was yelling at you. And I was like, I'm certain that happened, but I have no recollection of the show. Is that sort of a a byproduct of when you're that present in the moment, Mm -hmm. you almost can't? I feel as though it's like what I believe athletes have when they're like, truly in the zone or, you know, that state of gameplay where you're just, like, acting and reacting on instinct. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, when I do a show, I feel like I walk on stage and then the show is done and I walk off and I'm like, that was great. It is all about, as life should be, and I wish life was more like this, it's all about discovery. Like, being, like, what makes a good scene on stage is how we should all live our lives. But we, I live my life, at least, not like this at all, which is the only thing I have really is the present tense. The only True. thing we have right now is this moment, right? And so if an audience is going to watch us, they have to watch us make moves. They have to. We can't stall. We can't wait. I can't wait to see what you've got, being polite, blah, 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 blah. No, we have to start making decisions as quickly as possible. Where are we? What are we doing? What's this scene about? Who are you to me? All of the, all of the things, because when you walk out on stage, everything is possible. The right. audience knows that. And what you need to do as quickly as possible is narrow yourself down to like, oh, no, what we're doing is this. It seems like you would develop this knack for... Uh discovering the key to the character you are super quick and then and then a whole bunch of decisions follow that aren't conscious but yeah like you almost have to form a visual in your head of who that person is and then become them yes it's all about what is this person how does this person think because then whatever my scene partner is asking of me i have a point of view on it i have because what's not fun to watch is people who don't have a point of view yet because they're nervous they don't want to say anything that discounts what you're saying. A lot of bad improv is the result of politeness. You know, is the result of people not wanting to step on any toes, being like, you know, that's why a lot of beginner improv kind of mistakes are asking a lot of questions. You know, because you are on an empty stage, and so you want to, what do you do when you don't know what's going on? You ask people questions. The bummer is that person's in a, is in an improv scene as well. Right. They don't have any answers. So really bad improv is really just like what do you think of this thing? You know? And it's like right. uh, I don't know. It looks pretty good. Yeah, I know. It looks pretty good but you know it's broken. And now what are we doing? What, what the fuck is this? This is terrible. I'm upset right now. You know? That's a terrible scene. You say that and I think of sitcoms where the joke is the thing to be serviced of, of all. So you can't really glom on to a certain character because that character will shift his own point of view or his own belief system yes. for a joke. Because that's usually writers or somebody thinks, I love this joke. I or, love or my yeah, joke. Or it's like, well, we've given him three jokes and he doesn't have a joke. Sure. Th- give him one of his jokes. And that'll happen all the time where you'll see, some, and that's exactly what happens is the joke was written for somebody with the right point of, character point of view. But then somebody was light in the scene, and so they just threw the, they just changed the, they went through Some and changed the character description, character to from one to another. Right. And now somebody has a joke in their mouth that doesn't make any sense for them. And that's really hard to sell, you know? It's hard to sell a joke that doesn't jibe with who you're playing. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Snow. Everybody wants their home to look and feel great. Luckily, Snow makes it incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you live. 
Whether you just got the keys to your first place or you're looking to upgrade the pieces you've had forever, Snow has some goods that are practical and striking to look at. What Snow does is they make luxury essentials for every room in your home, minus the markup. They partner directly with master craftsmen to create beautiful, simple products that are made to last. Like their incredibly soft, award-winning sheets and fluffy duvets, or luxurious air-spun cotton towels and robes. And by the way, I have their luxurious sheets on my bed right now, and I love them. They also have super durable, dishwasher-safe porcelain dinnerware and wine glasses with titanium-enforced stems. Snow has received rave reviews from Vogue, Fast Company, Apartment Therapy, and more. It's the home collection of your dreams, priced for your reality. And right now, Snow is offering our listeners $30 off your first purchase of $150 or more when you go to snowhome.com slash camera. That's S-N-O-W-E home.com slash camera to get $30 off your first order. Again, visit snowhome.com slash camera for your special offer. And listen, when you get your order, send me an email, tell me what you think, because I think this is a great company and I'd love to know what your experience is. So go to snowhome.com slash camera, get your special offer and enter the world of snow. Now back to the show. In the book that uh, is the Bible for UCB, it says one of the biggest mistakes you can make as an improv actor is to try to be funny. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of explain that? Because improv is funny. Improv is funny, but it doesn't have to be. You know, just being funny isn't enough to hold an audience's attention for 30 minutes to an hour. You know, just being funny is, it satiates the audience's thirst for uh, a laugh. They came to a comedy show, they want to laugh. And it makes the performer uh, feel as though they're doing their job right. But it's actually not the most important thing. Uh, it, and it oftentimes can get in the way of good scene work or a good show because if you're pursuing laughs instead of uh, building a good scene with your partner, you're sacrificing the show and the scene for personal glory. Uh, and that really is someplace that a lot of performers end up because they are insecure or because they're just, you know, I, you know, I, I say this a lot uh, to people who improvise is like success at improv is putting the audience at ease and is being comfortable with nothing happening. Like when I used to teach the advanced classes at UCB, one of the first exercises I would do is I would have people get on stage and sit and just have the audience watch them. Watch them do nothing. You know, and people's discomfort with being watched is palpable. You know, with knowing that they can't get out of it, knowing that they can't do a funny aside, knowing that they can't whatever. People who really succeed as improvisers are people who are like, I don't care that I'm being watched. I am perfectly comfortable just sitting here, standing here, doing whatever. And that is a great place to start. Because I know, if I step on stage, I know eventually I'll make an audience laugh. I don't mind waiting. I don't mind, you know, like I do a show uh, once a month at UCB. Uh, Oh, Michaela Watkins talked about it on this show. And it is a one-hour improvised mono scene. We get a suggestion, and then we just improvise a scene for an hour. Uh, Like a real-time unfolding scene. And a lot of times, because it's going on so long there is a real ebb and flow of comedy. So what oftentimes happens, because you're digging in so deep on stuff, you don't have the, like a lot of times in, a, in an ensemble-based show, you and I are doing a scene, maybe we do a scene for four or five minutes, uh, really funny, heightens, 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 really funny, and then we get edited, and now another scene starts. In this show, right. there is no edit. So if you build and build and build to a natural, natural kind of end point, You still have to be these people. We still have to sit in it. And so oftentimes this show starts to to have elements that become more serious or more dramatic. And suddenly the audience is not laughing anymore. And so this can go on for... I did a scene with Darcy Carden once where we were waiting to see our marriage counselor. And all of these kind of personal grievances and gripes keep bubbling up. And then 20 minutes into like a 60 minute show, she says, I want a divorce. (laughs) And I just started crying. And the audience went silent. (laughs) And it was like, I don't know, six, seven minutes of very unsettling 
uh, weeping man talking to uh, a woman who the more emotionally upset I became, I felt like the more the more clear she was that she was doing the right thing in divorcing me. And it was brutal. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe six, seven minutes later, something happened that was so funny that it was like a catharsis for the audience. And you don't get that in other shows because you don't, or you don't, you don't really get the freedom to kind of really grind everything to a halt comedically but fully continue to explore and move forward on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, and as a result, everything that comes after that, even better, even funnier, even richer. Doesn't matter if an audience isn't laughing all the time, you know? So when you're three minutes into your crying jag, Mm -hmm. are you sort of just as curious or just as worried as the audience of like- No, I'm never worried. What's gonna happen? How am I gonna get out of this? I'm not, I'm genuinely not. And this goes back to being in that kind of performance state. I'm never worried. I'm never nervous on stage in that sense. Like, there's things that make me nervous. Um, but in, in that certain regard, on stage, improvising. Uh, ironically for me, the place I feel the most comfortable, on stage, improvising. Or improvising in any context. Not knowing what's going to happen, that's where I feel the most comfortable. Where that I'm the most so nervous is learn these lines exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Word for word. You know, I once got a note that was the, you know, that was basically like, you're putting a pause in that feels like a comma, it's a period. You know what I mean? Like that kind of specificity, that terrifies me. That's the stuff that I really freak out about. But if I'm going to improvise on stage, that's the best. And I don't care if we're lost. I don't care if it seems like the audience is... And I've even said on stage to an audience, I know I've lost you, but I'll get you back. Because I know I will. I'm, I'm absolutely certain I will win an audience back. You know, Because I can, again, it's... It's, they are primed, they came to laugh. You have to be really bad to make an audience not laugh. Yeah, they're like, we paid for this, this we're like, I'm going to a comedy show, I paid for it, I'm sitting they're down. They're probably a little buzzed. They're ready to go, <laughs> you know? You really just have to, like, tip it a little bit. Um, so, so when you were starting out, you, you described that uncomfortable feeling when new students have to just sit on stage and not be funny. Mm-hmm. Do you remember some of the hurdles that you had to get over yourself or... Or a moment that was an epiphany for you where it opened up what you were doing? One of the moments that was very kind of important to me was an Amy Poehler class that I took. She taught a class at one point that was all about characters. You know, because at the time, everybody in those institutions, you know, working primarily in improv and sketch, their goals were... SNL really is, right. you know, everybody's gunning for, at the time, Saturday Night Live and Mad TV. Was that your goal as well? Saturday Night Live was, you know, I moved to New York and I was like, I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live in three years. I was like, boom. I was also <laughs> super arrogant. I was like, that's me. I'm going to be on that. Boom. So you never had any intimidation about can I do improv or? or... I didn't. I didn't. I did. Well, I also by the I also when I landed in New York, I'd also been doing improv all through college, so it was not a foreign. Th- so, and I'd been getting really good feedback. I don't think I was great at it. You know what I mean? Straight out of the gate or anything. But it it somehow it worked with the way I thought, and so it seemed to me like uh, yeah, this is the world for me. This is the place where I'm going to get better, and I'm going to get on SNL. And then at a certain point, uh, oh, sorry, I was telling you the story about the Amy Poehler class. The, the epiphany, the, like the real, for me, epiphanic moment that changed a lot for me was I spent a lot of time in those early years trying to build SNL characters, characters that were more uh, friendly to SNL or Mad TV, bigger characters, yeah. right? I was not good at that. What I was good at was... Um, uh, and what Amy at some point said, which was really a really big moment for me, was she was like, don't make the mistake of thinking characters are people who have a weird accent, have a weird body posture, blah, blah, blah. It's not, characters aren't just externals. Characters are just, characters are just people that think differently than you think. And I was like, oh, that's everything. That's all I need, you know? So then it was really just, from then on, I was much more... Uh, adept and successful at building character showcases for myself within sketch shows that were point of view characters that weren't big externals characters, if that right. makes sense. Right, yeah, yeah. So from that point on, I then did a series of Nichols and May style sketch shows with uh, the actor Jessica St. Clair, 
we were partners for many years doing shows uh, that were deeply emotionally real. And that was way more interesting to me. Not just chasing laughs, but also letting story uh, and plot and character development inform those jokes, heighten and, and change why a character is funny. So with all that, was there a point where you auditioned for Saturday Night Live? Never. Never, Never audition. No, I get as close as I get is there's a stage before an SNL audition where they ask you to send tape. Yeah, that's as far as I ever got. Really? Yeah. And it was. And it, at a certain point, I. Well, did that kill you? Uh, it didn't kill me uh, to not get SNL because very quickly I realized my skill set was not c- completely compatible with SNL. Like they do want bigger, catchphrasier characters. Very quickly, I became consumed with getting on The Daily Show. I auditioned for The Daily Show when Helms and Cordry and all those guys did as well. Um, And that was, to me, that was the holy grail of shows that I deeply wanted, that I was, like, destroyed to not get. I I auditioned year after year and never got it. How did Um, that do for the arrogant guy? Oh, here's the deal for the arrogant guy. The arrogant guy that I was, the arrogant performer that I was that felt like, I can do this, I was always being rewarded on stage, uh, and I didn't work as an actor for 12 years. You know, like, I ate shit completely. I didn't really get my first job until, like, 2009. Like Like, The League. The League and Enlightened, I booked in the same month, basically. I was a lot more successful. I had a lot more success as a writer for the first, like, 10, 12 years of my career. Uh, That's where I was able to sell pilots, sell movies, sell stuff that I would then write that invariably would not get made or we would shoot a pilot but that wouldn't get picked up or like those that's where the first 10 years of my career were marked by uh, the ups and downs of a writing career and then, and and at continuing to audition and just booking nothing. Did you ever start to question like can I do this or like I'm just curious if you got to a point where you were like, well, the industry's telling me I should be a writer or I should teach. Yes. The move I made at one point was exactly what you described. I was simultaneously at one moment, I had sold a show to NBC as a creator. I was not on camera at all. We made it with Bradley Whitford and Romney Malco, all these great people, big sh- It was awesome. It was like and deeply shot a successful. Pilot. We shot a pilot. At the same time I was going through that process leading up to that, um, I was auditioning to be like fifth banana on like a CBS multicam. Right. And I was like, what am I doing? This is foolish. The industry is telling me, is rewarding me handsomely in this category as a writer and a creator, and like, I should do this. This is clearly what I should do. They're giving me all this money to make this show. I've got great actors who want to be a part of it. Why am I consumed by like having three funny lines in a pilot? Like, that doesn't matter. Like, then, but, I, but then you go on stage at UCB, yeah. and you would have this, Just, probably the, that feeling of that carrot dangling oh, of, completely. of onstage nirvana. Totally. But what I did was, I was like, oh, Great, exactly to your point. I get that reward by being on stage. So I'm going to stop auditioning. I'm just going to I'm going to put an end to like auditioning for nonsense. And I'm just going to continue to write and I'm going to continue to do like UCB shows. You know, that's going to scratch that performative itch. The other thing will be my career. Great. What a that's a delight. And I did that for like, I don't know, a couple of years, maybe? A couple of years that I didn't really do. So in your head, you kind of made the switch. I really switched over. And then, uh, still in New York, then that show didn't get picked up. And I came out to L.A. for a while. And because I came to L.A., um, my agents were like, do you want to go on auditions while you're here? You know? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, and and the, it just very luckily so happened that the people that did the league we're looking for improvisers. Right. And very luckily, I would happen to be here when they were doing it. They saw, they came to UCB and saw shows. Uh, I auditioned to, for, I auditioned for Paul Shear's part and uh, what ended up being Paul Shear's part and what ended up being Duplass's part. I didn't get either of them. 
they shot the first season like that. And then in the second, they liked me, the creators. So in the second season, they were like, we want to bring you on as this side character weirdo. Right. Uh, are you interested? And I was like, oh, I want to be this. Uh, you got, the thing you guys don't have in all of the archetypes of the show is you don't have a maniac. So you got to shape that a little bit. Oh, almost completely. They were like, you're Nick's brother-in-law. You come in so, because he can curry favor with his wife. Everybody hates you. And then they want to get rid of you. How do you want to play that? And I was like, great. I know exactly what I want to do. I want to be this version of a maniac that is deeply crazy, but also very emotionally available to the group. Right. You know, and that's the thing with Rafi is Rafi, that character is, he's not just a complete whirlwind of insanity. He is very emotionally attached to the people in the show, all of whom almost universally dislike him. You know, like he is like not like they don't like him and he loves them. And that's why I think that character stuck around as long as he did, because it was only supposed to be a three episode character. But they were like, oh, no, you got to You got to keep doing this. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, when you think about what you said at the top of the show when you told me that casting directors would say they're not looking for you. Yeah. And it almost would have taken the perfect storm of those kinds of consequences for you to sort of show what you could do. And that show, I will credit the Schaefers who created the league, that show, much like that casting director said to me, whatever, 18 years ago, said, you know, once somebody takes that chance on you, you'll work forever, you know? And luckily, they really took that chance. They hired me. They put me in front of, you know, so many people. And so many of the subsequent jobs I got were because of the league. You know, like, the I get, you know, I go from being on nothing I'm on the league, I'm on Enlightened, very briefly, and then, like, Modern Family wants me to be on an episode. And it was simply because the writers on Modern Family loved the league. Right. I was like, this is blowing my mind. You know, I get the dictator because of the league, you know? All, so many of, of those early jobs for me were directly tied to my success on that show. I'm it, so it's grateful. the definition of a big break. Oh, my God. So, and it came, you know, some... 14 years into me trying to do this. So many people know me as one thing. And for a lot of people, I'm like, they're like, you're Rafi from the league. But for a lot of people, they're like, you're Adrian Pimento, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Right. They have no idea what the league is. Or they don't know. Or you're what, Derek from yeah, the good Yeah, Derek place. from a good place. You know, it really is like, it's very siloed. There's some people who like it all, but a lot of people only know me as the one thing, which is wild. It makes me wonder, all those years of auditioning mm -hmm. and being told that people aren't writing or seeing you and you're falling through the cracks, if you start to take a measure of the business based on those failures, and you know what I mean? It would, I think it'd be hard not to get a little cynical about oh, yeah. why, you know, why, am, why is how I look or what I do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And would you sort of like turn on yourself and draw conclusions a little bit? on? It would bother me because I knew I was good. You know, it bothered me because I knew that the, the thing that was making me not get this job was because the person didn't think I looked right. You know, it wasn't because, like, I had a director come up to me once in a diner in New York who was like, hey, you don't know me. I direct a lot of commercials. You audition for me all the time. I think you're great. You're always one of the people that I want to hire. You're always so funny. Uh, but I'm t I just wanted to say uh, the client always wants a normal-looking white dude to, for the product. You know, they always want bland white guy. It's terrible. Yeah. And he was like, so <clears throat> I, I just want to tell you, like, again, like so many people in that in this phase of my career are very sweetly saying, don't be discouraged. You're not wrong. You should be doing this. It's just it's a really hard sell. But that's almost and, more discouraging. Oh, it's crazy. Because it's like if if it was that you're not good enough, you go, oh, I can get better. Oh, or I'd be like, if listen, if I spent 12 years with people being like, you're not very good at this, or you're not very funny, I would have done something else. Right. I didn't want to do this so much because I was like, I want to do this. I wanted to do this because I think I'm good at this. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. You know, but like to have there be so much feedback that like, uh, they just don't see the guy that way. Or, you know, I've, like somebody was like, you know, oh, they've already cast the character, the actress who's playing your sister and she's white. So you kind of, and I'm like, well, I'm a white, I'm white. So like, I, I don't know what we're doing here. Like, this is a wild conversation to be having. I know I look like, cause then I would also get, ca I would also get called in to play 
any various, you know, ethnicities right. uh, across the Middle board. Eastern or all of it. Indian. Or- yes, all of it. You know, and then, but inevitably, casting would be like, well. Are you actually at all Indian? And I'd be like, Oh no, not at all Indian. And they'd be like, Oh well, then what are we doing? We can't cast you. Did you ever get cast as a Greek guy? I'm trying to think <laughs> if anybody has been Greek. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> That's the irony of all of oh, this. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I've ever been Greek in any of my roles. Just in your life. Yeah, just in my life. <laughs> I like to think they're all secretly Greek. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Oh, like, yeah? It, it, there's no name for what you're experiencing. It's not racism. It's not no, discrimination. No. But it's weird. It's a super... Well, this is... That's where you get into what is deeply strange about this business, which is, yes, it's about people's talent. Yes, it's about whatever. But it's also about people deciding... I When I, I was picturing a, one of these guys or one of these women in this part, and it just starts to be, like, narrowed into... Very, very, like, whatever boring kind of versions of or very traditional versions of uh, who belongs on TV or who people see. Especially when I was younger and I was auditioning for commercials, a lot of the clients, they are like, no, I don't, that guy looks weird, you know? I don't, I don't know about that weirdo. Or, or that guy's funny, but... If he's actually white, are we going to get credit for having an ethnic person? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was, that was definitely, like, a, it was super disheartening because it really felt like I think I'm doing the right thing I think I'm where I belong but I just can't quite figure out when and how this is going to tip in my favor but I will say in a very you know like I would look around too at a lot of friends who were not in my community but were actors or uh, primarily actors who who were who felt beholden to the audition process, you know, who had no outlet but that which was granted by external people, right? Somebody can only, you only get to do your thing when someone casts you. And I felt very lucky, even though I, it was having, I was having so much trouble getting cast, I was having so much success on stage, so much success writing. So I was, it wasn't like complete, I don't know what, I, I can't believe, what am I doing wrong? I was, there was such a, there was so many things in my career that were going right, you know, like we went to the Aspen Comedy Festival, we got agents and managers, we got a development deal, we got like all of the things that, all the correct kind of hierarchical moves forward were happening on that level, but in the bigger kind of pilot season, get cast, you know, on a TV show or movies or whatever, that felt very far away. Right. I was so grateful to have UCB compared to like, again, my friends who didn't have that, didn't, weren't able to get on stage, were literally just home waiting for auditions. You know, and then if they got it, they worked for two months and then maybe not for another year or whatever. Like being beholden to, to do your thing only in that context felt it was so disheartening to me. Yeah, that um, wouldn't have worked for you. It wouldn't would've. have. Yeah. You know, you know, I was like, you know, and really was like, oh, well, if I can be a writer and uh, maybe it's maybe if I'm a successful enough writer, maybe I can direct stuff or something like that. But if I then get to like have UCB as an outlet for a, as a performer, that's like a pretty great life, you know? I wanted to ask you about writing because one of the things that I am so taken with when I see a great improv show is you just sit there going, how is this not written? Sure. Like, it almost seems like UCB should hire court reporters to sit in the wings and <laughs> transcribe as it goes, well, because how different is it from writing a movie with a partner except for the speed of it? Sure. Here's the thing. There are so many, there are so many myriad ways to come at writing, right? For some people, if they're going to write a movie or whatever, they outline, they card the whole movie. Every, before they start writing anything, everything is prescribed, right? right? Beginning, middle, end. They outline the whole thing. incident, all hope is lost, all the stuff, right? Then they start writing because they're just filling in the dialogue for these beats that they've already broken. That doesn't work for me. Like, I, don't, I can't wrap my head around knowing everything, really. So for me, I'm improvising as a writer as well because to me, the most important thing is dialogue. Uh, Structure and story kind of will fall in place as I go. 
But I write, as a lot of other people do as well, I, I know the general story I'm going to tell, and I just start writing. Now, are just, you writing by walking around the room and saying things out loud? Or are well, you? Th- so initially, I started writing for sketch shows with Jessica St. Clair, and we would sit in either her apartment or at a rehearsal room uh, at UCB, and we would record hours of just improvised scenes and then transcribe it, and then that transcription would be the beginning of rewriting, writing and rewriting the, the written sketch version. Right. But it all was predicated first on improvising because I think for me, for us, uh, and then for me as I continue in, in my career, the most significant moments in shows for me are moments of discovery, are moments when neither of us knew this was going to happen, you know, and yeah. that surprise, that bit of discovery, those happy accidents, that kind of stuff only happens when you are truly just in the moment, acting, reacting, and when you can find that and focus on it, you can build around. You can then build around that uh, a structure that makes sense. What remains a mystery to you about the whole improvisational? process that it is still a mystery you know that it is still un- that it is always at the beginning completely unknown you know that every show begins again with nothing like i don't know that that's exactly a mystery but that i take such joy in the knowledge that every time i'm going to get on stage i'm i'm completely prepared because i don't know anything I think that's such a personality type to be okay with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, night after night. Oh. And the joy, the relaxation of not having to prepare because you're already oh. prepared. There's nothing better. There's, that's why I'm never nervous for a show because I can't have prepared. You know, the only... Oh, right. You can't have that thing where you're beating yourself up because you didn't do your homework. Oh, yeah. You, I'll, I'll, I never have, like, a stress dream that, like, I'm on stage and I don't know how to... that I don't know what I'm going to do in this improv show. You know, because that's the whole point of an improv show. You don't know what you're going to do. There was that film that came out a few years ago that Mike Pagliglia did, Mm -hmm. Don't Think Twice. And one of the sort of, well, the sort of emotional arc of it involved a an improviser who gets a shot at yep. Saturday Night Live. Sure. And he starts sort of showboating and using his own improv company yeah. to further his own career. Mm-hmm. And, and it was sort of like that improv purist versus improv as stepping stone. Sure. Headbutting. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if, you know, as much as the ethos of UCB is supportive, if, if that sort of thing does occur as well. It does. I think definitely there are people who come in and out of the improv world, more so now that UCB is such a institution, right. known as a place to go and learn this skill set. And so improv suddenly becomes a skill set that actors want. Somebody, something that now agents and managers are saying, well, people want you to be able to improvise now, so maybe go to UCB and check that out, blah, blah, blah. And so UCB now has, uh, as an institution, has a lot of people that are there to learn the skill, to the, whatever, to further their own careers for themselves, right? right. Early on, in kind of what you're saying in uh, Berbiglia's movie, uh, that's definitely representative of an era of UCB that was, I feel like, before we started having real successes, before when it felt very clubhousey. It didn't even occur to us, like, oh, and then later you'll be in movies. It was really very insular, very community-based. You know, the the it was competitive in a very kind of. Um, uh, in a, it was competitive in a way that was very supportive. We were in a pressure cooker of people who everybody, you'd see a show and you'd be like, fuck, that was really good. We got to step it up. We got to step it up, guys. Come on. And it felt exciting. And then when people started getting real work, people started going, moving to L.A. and getting on TV or blah, 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 it started to be like, oh, wait a minute. There's a whole other thing going on here. There's a whole other like avenue that we can do. And that seemed to be really exciting and really important. The community itself, though, doesn't really reward people who consider themselves like lone wolves. Like, the scene really rewards people who are focused on ensemble-based improv comedy, you know, or sketch comedy, you know, uh, in this, at, at this point now. Uh, it really is a community that is built on and predicated upon the, you know, yes and and all of the stuff that is, uh, that is about, I make you look good, you make me look good. You right. know, and that trust 
is got to be there. And if there's untrustworthy people, if there are people who are selling out their scene partners, commenting, doing stuff that feels like they are only really concerned with their how they look on stage, those people kind of get weeded out or kind of go away on their own. It's a beautiful thing what you're describing is that you sort of discovered that the thing you love was not just a stepping stone to other things. Oh, it, no. There's no ultimate failure if you don't get The Daily Show or SNL. But, but it sort of took you going through that to find out that that's... Absolutely. You love the process and the, oh, yeah. the doing of it much more than the trappings Well, it's like of, sometimes people will say in interviews like, uh, oh, you know, you're, uh, you're on this thing or you're in this show or I love you on that or whatever. Like, but I, I, you, you still do shows at UCB. Like, why? Like, you, you did it. You, you, you know, thinking like that's like... Uh, the minor leagues. Yeah, and then you graduate into TV and film or whatever. And to me, I'm like, oh, no, that is like, that's the whole, that's everything. You know, uh, that's the engine that gets you through uh, TV, film work, all of it is that. And it, were I to, I, I fear, were I to let that atrophy, uh, I would be, we, we were just talking about this last week because a friend of ours, we did our show and a, one of the guys in the show is like, man, I haven't been to the show in like six weeks. I felt really rusty. And it is, like if you get out of practice, it's almost like exercise. If you don't exercise for like two months and then you like run five miles, you're a fucking mess. Even if running five miles is no big deal to you two months ago. Improvising is the same thing. It's a muscle that you exercise. And exercising it and keeping it, keeping it like healthy makes you just better at all the rest of it. When I step on set for a TV show or a movie or stepping on stage to do my podcast, whatever it is, if, I'm, if I've been on stage, if I've been improvising a lot, I just feel loose and calm and chill and everything seems easy. Well, it's such a great gift in that you said earlier that you wish you could live your life Ooh. more in the principles of improv oh my and God. more in the present. But what you're saying is the more you stay in the present, the more comfortable you are in your own skin and you're able to do these things and your mind works better. And, and it, it really is the definition of an artist to find something that fulfills you that way. And it's fascinating just to hear how you approach it. And I encourage anyone who's watching this right now to to you know, dive into this and, and oh, see what it is you do. And absolutely. Thank you for thank you for coming on and talking about your Thrilled career. Thrilled to be here. Thanks yeah. for thanks for having me and thanks for asking. Uh, listen, I'll talk about it, like I there's nothing I want to talk about more than improv, honestly, in a very nerdy way. And I'm so grateful that you know that that's what you wanted to talk about. I really appreciate it. You know, like this is the thing that I am the most passionate about. You well, know? it's it's an endlessly fascinating art form, and uh, it's lovely to talk to you about it. So. You as well. Thank you for doing it. Thanks, Sam. Hey, folks, that's our show. Kind of makes you want to go try improv, doesn't it? Well, at the very least, you can go see others try improv, including Jason Mansukas. Just head over to UCB any Wednesday or Friday night, and you're apt to catch one of the most interesting, creative, funny, and fleeting shows you'll ever see in your life. You can also catch Jason on television, in The Good Place, and I'm Sorry, or on the big screen in John Wick 3. Now, you can't see off-camera in a theater, but you can see it almost every other way. If you haven't been to offcamera.com yet, you don't know what you're missing. First off, take a minute, if you haven't subscribed to this very podcast yet, Go to iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there, make sure to leave us a rating and a review because that helps other people find the show. Then go on over to offcamera.com and see what else we have to offer. Namely, over 190 episodes of this very show where I've been lucky enough to have conversations with some of the most iconic actors, musicians, artists, directors, writers, and skateboarders and motorcycle racers of our time. Now, if you have DirecTV, you can see this show every Monday and Wednesday night on the Audience Network. And if you don't have DirecTV and you want to see what we're doing on camera each week, you can get our television subscription package. And for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show available to watch on any device you choose as many times as you want. It's a great deal and a great way to dive deeper into the off-camera experience. So check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. 
And if you follow me on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of behind-the-scenes photographs because we also make a magazine for the show. So I get to do a photo shoot with everybody I talk to, and it's a great way to go even deeper into the experience. So check out my Instagram feed and stay connected with Off Camera. And if you love the show, take a minute on your own social media and tell the world about it. Tell your friends, tell your followers, and share what we're doing on this show. I want to thank everyone that works on the show, Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson for all their hard work each week to bring you this show. And I want to thank you for tuning in and listening and being a part of this experience. I feel very lucky that I get to not only have these amazing conversations, but that I get to share the conversations around the world through this podcast, through the television show. It's been one of the great experiences of my life to be able to do it. So thank you for tuning in each week. Speaking of that, be sure to tune in next time when I talk to singer-songwriter Andrew Bird. I did grow up playing violin, but I was never fully indoctrinated into the classical scene. I always kind of resisted any particular scene that required strict adherence. It was kind of part of my identity to kind of feel like an outsider. It wasn't until like I came out of music school, I started going to lounge acts, and I was really perplexed by this thing called indie rock. The guitars were spitefully out of tune, and the singing was wayfish and out of tune as well. And I was just like, what's going on here? The DIY thing, you know, just I liked that I could just make some posters and book a show, and I could be in control of the whole thing. With 15 records in the past 13 years, the classically trained violinist turned indie rock musician has clearly had a prolific music career. His latest album, titled My Finest Work Yet, is filled with infectious melodies, cinematic themes, and probing lyrics. And it's an album that I fell in love with, and I just had to have him on the show. What I learned about his life was fascinating. And when I asked him to bring his guitar along and play a song, I was mesmerized by his talent, his originality, and his whistling. Andrew joins me to talk about the farmhouse that jump-started his career, how his senses trigger the songwriting process, and his absolute hatred of headphones. See you next time, off camera.